Well, we're in the ninth week of a sermon series, a series of sermons that are rooted in the New Testament book of Acts. And we're calling this series, When the World Turned Upside Down. And what we've been doing is looking at this group of people who, because of what they've been introduced to in the message of Jesus, the life of Jesus, they are living their lives a particular kind of way now. They're, they're living differently as people. And as a result of that, they literally begin to change the world. Through, through thousands of, of little ways and through thousands of lives, the world begins to shift and cultures begin to change. It's a beautiful thing as we, as we read it and walk through this. But I wanna be really clear about something. The, the spark that ignites this, the spark that over and over again from one city to the next that initiates this movement and causes this thing to happen over and over, it's something that we in the church refer to as the gospel. Now, that, that's a term, if you've been around church, you've probably heard it a lot, but let me just explain it to you for just a moment. Um, and, and let me back up also for a moment and say that I think most of us, especially these days, we realize we live in a broken world. We live in physical brokenness, relational brokenness, economic brokenness, racial brokenness. We live in a broken world. It, it doesn't take very long to look around and realize, okay, this is broken. Not only that, that brokenness has leaked into all of these different aspects or these different areas of our lives, and it influences all of those different things. And so you and I are left in this place where we live out a broken existence. Not only that, the, the story of the gospel reveals to us that there's a separation between humanity and the God of love that created humanity. And so when we ask the question, what is the gospel? The, the gospel is what restores the connection between humanity and God. And then as a result of that reconnection begins to heal all of the areas of brokenness in our lives and in our worlds. It begins to reach out and it changes how we relate to one another and how we work and how we think of economics and, and, and how we use our, our free time. All of these things begin to shift and change as a result of the gospel. The whole thing, by the way, it centers on Jesus. It centers on the way of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. All of this together encapsulates in this one word called the gospel. Now, what happens when the gospel begins to go forward is that there's a movement, there's a revolution that takes place. And the whole idea is that when this is offered to us, when we begin to experience this reconnection, everything changes. And as a result of that, it, people begin joining in. People are invited to, to tell a different story with their lives. There's a different narrative that we get to follow. That's what the gospel is doing in culture. So it gets introduced and people choose. Now, here, here's what's really interesting for me is that over the years, I've seen so many different responses to the gospel, which is always puzzling to me that this thing that is beautiful and wonderful and offers reconnection with God can be responded to in several different ways. In fact, it's not unlike the way where people respond to other things. And let me just use this example for a minute. Um, over the years, as a, as a leader, as somebody who uh, teaches and leads, as a pastor even, um, I, I've been the kind of person who thinks about the future. I, I tend to look at where God is taking us and, and I think about what he wants to do in the future. And I'm concerned about us, if you will, in, in an Old Testament sense, taking the land of promise that's before us or, or fulfilling the calling that God has on us. And there are so many days when I dream about influencing our part of the community and then our city and, and our state. And I think about in, influencing a nation. I just, that's the way my brain works. I'm just always thinking about like, God, where are you taking us and what's happening next? And I want to get us there. Now, what's, what's fascinating to me is, um, is the ways that people respond to the gospel. They respond so radically differently to this wonderful, beautiful thing. There are distinct responses that people have to this spark. 
not, not unsimilar to the way that people respond to other things in life. In fact, let me just give you this example. As a leader over the years, uh, I, I have found myself to be one who focuses on the future. Like I, I'm thinking about the ground to be taken in the days ahead. I think about the land that we are inheriting to use an Old Testament metaphor. I think about, uh, I think about the calling that we have and whether or not we're fulfilling it. There's a very future orientation in my thinking as a leader and as a teacher and as a pastor. I just want us to, to do all the things God's called us to do. Now, I'm also smart enough to know that not everybody thinks the way that I think, and um, that's a good thing. The bad thing is that I'm not smart enough to know when I shouldn't talk about these things. So there have been moments over the years when I've suddenly begun to spout vision. I began to share ideas. I began to talk about the future, and I see different responses to the things that I'm saying. It's like I've opened up the fire hydrant of vision and I'm just hosing down this crowd and I suddenly see their faces and realize everybody's receiving this differently. Now, there are typically three ways uh, that people respond. The first one I call the early adopter. Uh, these are the ones that they hear the vision and they get excited and they jump on, they like, put their tool belts on and they say, put me to work. I wanna be a part of this. It resonates deeply in their souls. These, these people, they are fun to watch light up in those moments. But but at the other end of the spectrum are what I call the late adopters or sometimes the never adopters. Uh, these are the people that as, as I began talking, the longer I go, the more rigid and stiff they become. They cross their arms. You can just feel the skepticism oozing out of their pores. They begin to ask questions and say things like, well, we could never do that. And they begin to talk about all the reasons why this is impossible. That's the second group. But then there's this third group. The third group of people are really interesting to me because they're, they're the ones that jump on. They, they're the ones that they say, I'm, I'm on with this. I agree with this. But later on, what I've discovered is the reason they got on board, the reason they were excited wasn't because of the vision. It was because whatever I said aligned with something they wanted. And this is what I've learned over the years. It's not that second group. It's not the, the late adapters, the late adopters that give me struggle Usually it's those that down the road, I discover they weren't really in from the beginning. They were out for something in themselves. They were looking for something for them in this, and they just jumped on so that they could get what they want. Well, in my, in my experience, there are three different responses to the gospel, and they parallel what I just was describing, which brings us to today's text. So today we're in Acts chapter 8, and, and, and in Acts chapter 8, um, we're picking up where the events left off last week. In Acts chapter 7, it closed with the murder of Stephen outside the city of Jerusalem. We were introduced to an individual named Saul, who we're going to see more of this week. And in these events that take place now, the aftermath of this, we see three distinct responses to the gospel. The spark, we see people responding in three different ways. And it's incredibly important that we look at these. Now, I'm gonna give them to you now and then we're gonna talk about them. But the first one is the resistor. The first one is the one that crosses their arms and, and resists the message of the gospel. The second one is the adopter. The third one is what we're calling the syncretist. So I wanna look at these Look at these first two, and then we're going to spend a little bit more time talking about the syncretist, this last one. So uh, if you have a Bible, you can follow along with me in verse 1 of Acts chapter 8. It says this, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Saul is, is resisting. He's resisting the gospel. He is the one that is filling this first role. And uh, as we explored somewhat last week, 
Um, he's resisting for a really good reason. It's understandable, if you will. Maybe not a good reason, but an understandable reason in his mind. Let me just explain something to you about Saul. Um, Saul is a Hellenistic Jew, meaning he had grown up under the influence of Greek culture, Hellenistic culture, and he had this awareness that because of that, even though he was a Jew, he was actually looked down upon. He was less than as a result of that. But here's the deal about Saul, and this is really important for you to understand about him for the rest of his life. Saul had worked so hard, possibly harder than anyone else in his culture, to do everything he could do to shed himself of his Hellenistic past and become a Hebrew Jew. He had worked so hard. He, he built a resume and a career, and he studied, and he worked, and he had found his identity and his Jewishness so heavily that this is what made him who he was. And so along comes the gospel, along comes guys like Stephen or, or, or these other individuals, and he can't see the good in this. He can't see beyond what's happening in front of him. All he sees is the loss. All he sees is that this is a threat to everything I have worked for. In fact, you'll, you'll discover this about him. He worked really, really hard. So he resists it. He rejects it because he has too much to lose. By the way, that's not too uncommon in our culture today. If you translate that to our day and age, because of misinformation, because of misunderstanding, there are people today who see the gospel, and while it might not be a conscious decision, they realize this is going to cost me too much. This is going to cause me to give up my life. This is going to make me lose certain things because I've learned to live a certain way. They have a belief about the world, and this so adjusts that belief that they can't even conceive of how they would accept this or enter into it. And so they cannot find a way to move towards Jesus. I can't tell you how many times I've been on the other side of this and wishing that somebody could just see if you only knew what this really was, but because of the loss, they resist. They, they reject, they can't receive it. That's Paul. And that's one response to the gospel, the resistor. Then we come to the second one in the text and it's the adopter. And before we read about him, let me just explain something because um, this church right now in this moment, what I just read, it is under persecution, very real persecution, by the way. This isn't just, uh, you're not allowed to meet in a, in a gathered community and you can watch online. This is, you're gonna be dragged out of your homes and thrown into prison and possibly murdered. That's the kind of persecution that's taking place. And because of that, the people are being scattered. But what's interesting about what we just read is it wasn't the apostles that got scattered. It wasn't the staff of the church that got scattered. It was the people of the church that gets scattered out into the surrounding regions. So this is what we read in Acts chapter eight, verse four. Follow with me on this. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. By the way, this is a side note. I love that line. There was much joy in the city. I just truly believe that one of the best indicators for whether or not a church is fulfilling its purpose in the city that it's placed in is that the city has joy because those people are there. Again, that's not the point of this, but I just love that. The point of this is that we're being introduced to this individual named Philip, and Philip's trajectory is really interesting. Um, at some point in this early formation of the church, he chooses to be a part of the way of Jesus. He chooses to join this movement. He becomes a part of this revolution. And so then he's 
interfacing with all of the other believers. He's interacting. He's a part of this community. But at some point, he must have exhibited enough character, enough commitment, enough faithfulness that in chapter six, he was one of the individuals that was chosen to serve the Hellenistic widows. And so he, he's asked to serve. He's being acknowledged. But then there's this persecution and the church gets scattered. But instead of just running to the hills, instead of, instead of just hiding out, Philip had so fully adopted the way of Jesus that it was a foregone conclusion that when he got wherever he was going, he would begin to proclaim the gospel. He would share this message of Jesus. And he does that. And there's this massive response. Philip is the adopter. He's all in. He's committed. He's not trying to preserve his old life. He didn't just sort of add Jesus on because it was convenient in the moment. He's fully leaning into this new life. And by the way, that happens today as well. In fact, this one's really personal to me because I feel like that's been my story. Um, let me just say this. I think this is good for you to hear that I never in a million years would have ever thought I'd be doing what I'm doing today or in this moment especially. Uh, it never would have crossed my mind. When I packed my bags and I went off to college, my freshman year in college, if you would have told me uh, that someday I'd be sitting here doing this, I never would have believed you. I, let me just say this. I love Jesus and all. I mean, I was a kid that went to church with my parents but I had a life and I had plans and this wasn't what I had in mind with my plans. But then I began to understand what Jesus was really all about. And I genuinely began to move into joining this way of Jesus. And the closer I got to the way of Jesus, the more my plans, the more my dreams became subject to his dreams and his plans. In other words, I adopted his plans for my life. Um, by the way, that, that whole idea, that whole concept is why the biblical authors use the language that they do, words like Lord. That, the idea of calling Jesus our Lord is this idea of acknowledging that we are submissive to him, that he rules us, that, that he has authority and control over us. Or there's other places where the, the phrase bondservant or bondslave is used to describe Christians. And it's this idea that we become slaves to, to Jesus Paul talks about us even dying to our old selves, that our old selves die a death and we're a new kind of person. See, when we say yes to Jesus, we are turning over the keys of our life to him. When we say yes to Jesus, um, that's what it looks like to be an adopter. We're relinquishing control of our life, our plans, everything, we're doing that. Um, to quote the, the great theologian, Carrie uh, Underwood, you basically say, Jesus, take the wheel. Sorry, I could not resist doing that. But you get the point. There is no middle ground in this, which is why men like Saul reject this. They can see this. So that's what it looks like to be the adopter. Take my life and use it. I'm all in for this thing. That's Philip. But the most dangerous response, the, the most dangerous thing for you, and I think the greatest threat to Christianity is what we see in the third response. So Philip is preaching in Samaria, and then we read this. Acts chapter eight, verse nine, it says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. So I just wanna pause here for a moment. We have Simon. 
Simon's a magician of some sort. He's sort of a spiritual guru that's leading in this area. In fact, historically, he's referred to as Simon the Sorcerer. And he had influence over the people. And I think that's really critical for us to understand. This is a real person who had real influence. He had real power. And people paid attention to him because of what he was able to do, the things he would perform. But when Philip tells them about Jesus, they make the decision to follow Jesus. They make the decision to move their attention to him. So these people were believing a certain thing, pursuing a certain thing, and now suddenly they're shifting and they become adopters. Philip is an adopter, and now these individuals he produces are adopters. But then I want you to see what happens next. Verse 13, it says this, that even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So Simon himself believes. This guy who was leading others, the sorcerer, he believes and he's baptized. But I want you to notice something that's said about him here. Seeing the signs and miracles, he was amazed. Now we read a lot in the New Testament about people being amazed. But for Simon, I think there's more going on for him and what's taking place here. Let's just keep reading in verse 14. It says, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the apostles, they hear about this and they're like, well, somebody should go check on this. I totally get this. This is not a big brother move. This is not a controlling move. This is just a, let's go see what God is doing in this other region move. That's what this is. And when they get there, there's this interesting spiritual phenomenon that takes place that um, at some point we'll talk more about this, but I want you to see what happens with Simon the sorcerer. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon sees this and he says, now that is a good trick. Like that's better than a rabbit out of a hat. That's better than some card trick, right? This is real power. And so he says, let me give you some money. How much would it take for me to have what you have? Give give me this power. That's what he's looking for. And in the next few verses, we're going to read this, but Peter unloads on him. And in what he says, we learn a powerful lesson about the gospel in our own lives and how we're responding to it. Look at, look at this with me. Verse 20, it says, Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor law in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven of you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, the question you have to ask is why in the world is Peter so firm in this, right? Why does he unleash in this way? It seems like an innocent mistake, especially for this guy. This is a far bigger issue than what we think. And it, it reveals who this third person is. It's this person that we refer to as the syncretist. Now, the key verse is verse 21. He says to him, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Now, in this culture and in this language, part or lot had to do with inheritance. Your part or your lot was what you had coming to you as the member of a family. It's your portion for being in the family. 
So Peter is looking at this guy and he's saying this, this thing you're doing, this offering money so that you can have the power to lay hands on people, this idea that you have, this line of thinking, it is so contrary to the gospel that you literally will not receive the benefits. You will not receive the blessing. You will not receive the inheritance that is intrinsic with the gospel as long as this is the way that you think, as long as you maintain this perspective. In other words, you're gonna completely miss out. If this is where you are, you have no inheritance in this. Like you're not even a part of this because this isn't the gospel. You've missed the point. And in missing the point, it means you are going to miss out. That's what Simon Peter is saying to Simon the sorcerer. He's saying this. He's saying it's not about the power of Jesus. It's about the person of Jesus. That's what he's clarifying for him. It's not about the power of Jesus. It's about the person of Jesus. So let's talk about what Simon has done here. What what has Simon actually done? Well, he's made this whole thing about the power. He's all about the outcomes. He's come to Jesus, but he's come to Jesus because of what Jesus can do for him. But it's still about him. That's what this offer that he's, that he's making reveals. He's not really interested in Jesus. He's not in, interested in, in, in who Jesus is or leaning into him. He's interested in how Jesus can give him what he wants. And that kind of thinking, that approach to the gospel, although ever so slight, and ever so hard to perceive is the very approach that erodes our faith and the faith of so many people in our world today. Think about this. What was driving Simon's life before this? Before Philip comes to Samaria, well, it was fame. It was power. It was his influence. That was driving him. That's, he had this identity because he had influence over people. That's where he found his identity. The question for us in this is, well, what about you? What about me? Where do you find your identity? Where do I find my identity? Maybe it's the attention of somebody in particular. Maybe it's the favor of a group of people. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's experiencing comfort and pleasure. Maybe it's control over circumstances. Maybe, maybe you, you want a pain-free life. Maybe you just want to be productive or make a difference. Maybe it's just stability. I don't know. There could be all sorts of things that we sort of identify with and say, that's what my life is all about. The list could go on and on. The point isn't to point out every specific one. The point is to identify the psychology, to identify the syncretism and say, where have I done this? See, let me just explain syncretism to you. It is the amalgamation or the attempted amalgamation of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. We're mashing things up together that are incongruent. And we do this with Jesus. We try to merge Jesus with, with, with the, the American way of life. We merge it with our plans and goals. We merge it with our economics. We merge it with our politics, our values. We, we do this and we try to bring Jesus in like he's going to be changed by those things. So you might just say like, we, we look at Jesus and we add him to the equation, sort of hoping we, we get a different result. Like here's my life, Jesus, and this is what I've decided to do. And now I add you to this, hoping for the outcome that I want. And it's no different. When you and I do that, it's no different than Simon coming to Jesus for his power, not for who he is. As long as we do that, as long as we turn Jesus into a means to an end and not the end in himself, we will not have part or lot in what he is really offering us. In fact, let me just, let me just share this with you that um, there's probably not a month that's gone by in the last 20 years that, that I haven't heard somebody say or hear about somebody saying to someone else that they're done with Jesus or they're done with the church. And whenever I hear that, I'll dig a little bit deeper and I'll say, well, tell me about that. 
And there's one thread that runs through all of those stories for me. And it's that those people didn't get what they wanted out of Jesus. Like the relationship went south, the money dried up, the the people weren't kind, somebody left. Um, All of those things, they didn't get what they wanted out of Jesus. But every time I hear that, you know what I realize? It turns out that Jesus didn't get what he wanted out of them. They didn't get what they wanted, but Jesus didn't get what he wanted out of them. And that was their heart. That's all he wants. That's all Jesus wants from me. And all he wants from you is your heart. He went to a cross to show you his love so that he could capture your heart. He's shown grace to us for our hearts. He doesn't want our stuff. He doesn't want our money. He wants our hearts. And here's the most beautiful thing about this. He doesn't want our hearts for his sake. He wants our hearts for our sake. Like it's it's not like he needs it. He understands that we need it because he understands that until he has our hearts, we will never be satisfied. We will look for love in all the wrong places. We will try to find identity in all the wrong things. We will search for significance in all the wrong ways. And he knows this about us. Jesus had Simon's attention, but he didn't have Simon's heart. That's why Peter says this. That's why Peter tells him, you need to repent, which that word is such a beautiful word that's so misunderstood. Repent literally just means to turn, to to move in in a new direction. Simon hadn't made the turn. He just sort of brought Jesus along the journey with him. He was still moving in the same direction. He's still headed towards the same things. And Peter says, no, man, you need to turn. You need to move your direction and let Jesus have your heart. Now, I'm going to close with this. One of the reasons the church has lost its influence, I believe this wholeheartedly, one of the reasons that the church has lost its influence in culture today is that rather than offering people a radically different narrative to live in, a radically different dream to dream, we have given them a gospel that fits neatly into their lives that they've already prescribed for themselves. In fact, I have this tendency to call this self-help with a Jesus twist. But my, my question is this, what do people really need? What they, what they want and what they're really looking for is a new story to live in, the real adventure of a lifetime to actually experience. I just want you to wonder with me about this. What if there was a group of people who were living according to a different script, playing a new game with an entirely different set of rules? Can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine how different this world would be? if there were people that turned and started living an entirely new way. These are the three responses to the gospel. You can resist it, or you can adopt it wholeheartedly. You can go all in, or you can be a syncretist. And Jesus might have your attention, but he doesn't have your heart. I want you to consider this over the next couple of minutes. As the worship team plays, I want you to just think about this. I want you to think about your response. I want you to think about all the ways that maybe uh, you've responded to the gospel. In a few moments, I'll come back and I'll close this.
the question really is this. Have you, will you um, turn over the keys of your life to Jesus? Will you adopt? Will you be an adopter? Will you lean into this new story? Will you say yes to Jesus?
I know for some of you watching, you saying yes to Jesus might be the first time you ever do this. And if, and if you make that decision today, if you say, no, you're right, I, I've just been resisting or I've been syncretizing, but I haven't really adopted this thing. I haven't really taken this in as my own and let his story become my story. If today you, you wanna do that, I encourage you, just simply say yes to Jesus. There's some information that we're offering you so that you can let us know and get any help you want. But now's an opportunity for you to begin a new kind of story in your life. Now, with that and for everybody, for all of us, may you all, may all of us see the ways in which we have converted Jesus to our thinking rather than being converted by Jesus to his thinking. May we have the courage to boldly look at our lives and allow him to redefine our stories in this life and the life to come. In Jesus' name.